for me, the defining moment was uh, the reaction to the publication of my book, The Dignity of Difference, which was my response to 9-11, and it was published on the first anniversary of 9-11. I had felt that 9-11 was going to shape the future of the world, uh, and that as an act of religiously motivated violence, we had to recognize the potential for violence in religions and uh, respond to that. So I wrote this very, very strong book, perhaps too strong, called The Dignity of Difference, in which I argued that the great religions had to make space for one another. Uh, this was a radical thing to say, and for many of my rabbinical colleagues, not only in Britain but around the world, it was simply too radical. Uh, and the reaction was quite uh, sharp and difficult. Uh, in essence, I, as a chief rabbi, as defender of the faith, was accused of, really, I suppose one has to say, heresy. Uh, which is an awkward position to be in if you are defender of the faith. And uh, the attacks were so strong and so widespread that uh, I reached a point of what I can probably call black despair. I was not able to see a road from here to there. And that's when I had the revelation. Um, as near as I'll come to hearing a voice from heaven saying, do you realize that if you resign over this, if you allow yourself to be defeated, it won't be you who is defeated simply, it will be everyone who ever put their faith in you. And that was when I realized that leadership is not primarily about the leader, it's about keeping faith with everyone who asked you to lead. And at that moment, the whole tenor of my life changed. It stopped being personal. It was not about me. It was about ideals and it was about people and about not letting them down. And having changed direction 180 degrees and no longer seeing this as an attack on me personally, uh, I acquired a, a strength which I'd never had before and has never left me since. Uh, and that was when I realized there are these defining moments and either you let them defeat you or you refuse to let them defeat you. And Nietzsche rightly said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So that for me was the defining moment. My values, principles and boundaries actually had a very concrete shape because Believe it or not, there was an age before smartphones. And that age was dominated by something called the Filofax. And uh, that is what I used to have. And so on the um, first page of my Filofax, which I wrote, and the date is here, 21st of August 1991, that is 10 days before I became Chief Rabbi, I wrote my life principles to have been known as a Jewish leader who took seriously love of God and love of human beings, to have done something concrete to promote values like spirituality and altruism, to have raised respect for Judaism among both Jews and the wider world, to have made people feel 
and exercise the full range of their possibilities. Now, if you put those in a place that you can't avoid seeing them at the start of every day, and for that matter, at the end of every day, it kind of keeps you on track. Uh, because uh, Macmillan rightly said, Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister in the late 50s, when asked what were the biggest problems of being Prime Minister, replied, events, dear boy, events. Uh, so any leader is going to be buffeted uh, by crosswinds, by the sheer force of events. And unless you remember and do so daily what your principles and objectives actually are, you will be buffeted. So that's how I kept them going. How did I discover my strengths and passions? Well, of course there's a negative way of discovering them when people tell you stuff that you really don't want to hear. So a lot of people used to tell me, you know, Sax, you're just not a people person, which is problematic if you're a religious leader. So I realized that was not one of my great strengths, and I discovered that um, it turned out to be a lot easier speaking to a thousand people than speaking to three. You can speak to a thousand people even if you're not a people person. So that was when I discovered that things like public speaking and writing were my strengths, much more so than the small group interactions, because I'm just not a great people person. Um, and then sometimes people just tell you things. I remember a guy who I had almost no interactions with over the years, but just let slip said, Sax, you have a passion for ideas. And I suddenly said, yeah, that's it. I never realized that before. I have a passion for ideas. So sometimes people will tell you in a positive way. Sometimes they'll tell you in a negative way. And every time they tell you something in a negative way, the real art is to then choose to work with people who are strong where you are weak. So being not a great people person, I try to build teams that had great people, people at the top of them. Um, and that's basically how you do it, by critical reflection, by listening hard, by seeing your unexpected successes and realizing that your failures are just not really failures. They're just little nudges from heaven or from earth saying, you're in the wrong territory. Get back to where you really can do what you have to do. How do you build an integrated life? I, I have to say that was one of my big weaknesses uh, because I always took seriously that couplet from the poet W.B. Yeats, the intellect of man is forced to choose perfection of the life or of the work. And I was a kind of perfection of the work type of person, not a perfection of the life type person. So, you know, um, to... to uh, to take a crazy extreme example, um, I don't think you would have invited Beethoven for dinner. You know, <laughs> I don't think he had much in the way of small talk or Nietzsche, for that matter. You know, people are very focused on the work; they're not great at the life. So um, you do certain things when that happens. Number one, um, you marry somebody who has a bigger heart than you have. So Elaine was always the person who was my good conscience, who said, I know you don't want to do it, but that's a family, that's a friend, you've got to do it. 
And uh, when you know that you're married to somebody with a bigger heart than you, they help you to do that correct life balance. Second thing, of course, is religious ritual. I mean, Judaism has this wonderful thing called Shabbat where you can't write, you can't watch the television, and you can't work. So you spend time with family, with community, praying, thanking God, and all the rest of it. These are, that is, I think, the oldest and best time management seminar in history. So the Sabbath really forces you to develop that life-work balance. And the third thing is you learn pretty much from your kids. <laughs> I mean, I've always assumed that children are there to teach, not to be taught. And I was always inspired by them, and I saw how they built integrated lives. And I think I, I learned from them. How do you build a team? Well, rule one I've already suggested is recognize where you're weak and surround yourself by people who are strong in those areas. So uh, for me, that was getting somebody who was a really good people person, somebody who could handle organization without bursting into tears, the kind of thing that I tend to do when having to do anything practical. And it's just incredibly supportive and life-enhancing when you're surrounded by people who are just better than you at all sorts of things. Uh, number two, um, the most important thing in building a team is empowering them to say the single most important word in the human vocabulary, which is no, i.e. not a good idea, Rabbi Sachs, or as Sir Humphrey and Yes Prime Minister used to put it, courageous Rabbi Sachs, which is uh, the nice way of saying the same thing, lie down until the moment passes. Empower your team to step in and stop you making the big mistakes. And number three, build a team of people whose ethical standards are as high as or higher than yours. And they will force you to be guided by the better angels of your nature. And I'm happy to say that that's exactly the kind of teams that we've built and the current one, which is the best that I have ever had. The difference I sought to make in the world was to make Judaism speak to people who are in the world, uh, because it's quite easy being religious in a house of worship, in a synagogue, at church, or even actually at home or in the school. But when you're out there in the marketplace, um, how do you retain those really strong values? And uh, secondly, the challenge that came from university. I was studying philosophy at a time when there were virtually no philosophers who were religious believers, at least none who were prepared publicly to confess to that. So uh, the intellectual challenges were real. So how do you make Judaism speak to people in those worlds, the world of academic life, the world of uh, the economy? And uh, in the end, I realized that to do that credibly, I had to actually go into the world myself, whether it was broadcasting for the BBC or writing for the Times and getting a little street cred in the world itself, which actually then
broadened the mission and I found myself being asked by politicians and people like that to advise them on their issues, which forced me to widen my boundaries. So I think you take any road, you may well find yourself, without deviating from that road, driving into landscapes that are much bigger than you ever thought the road would take you to. And that's really how it's changed. What did I learn about leadership that I'd like to hand on to others? Number one was the thing that made me a leader in the first place. I never dreamt of being a leader. It was the last thing on my list of life objectives. But there were times, critical moments in my life, when I met people who believed in me much more than I believed in myself. And that actually inspired me and empowered me to go and become a leader myself, which I'd never really wanted to do. So uh, that is a good principle, uh, which has two implications. Number one, seek out the people who may show you your potential. And number two, do the same for others. If you find people with that potential, communicate to them your belief in them which is probably the most empowering and inspiring thing you can do. Uh, number two, be aware that all the difficulties and all the pain are ways of making your life richer and more meaningful and you yourself a bigger and stronger human being than you would ever have been otherwise. That was the thrust of the great Theodore Roosevelt's speech on leadership, you know, it's the man in the arena or the human being in the arena who actually knows the toil and the tears and the sweat. And so I would say um, what I learned is that the pain is the gain in a very real sense. Um, and uh, thirdly, um, the surprise discovery that you actually had something you never believed you had. For me, the biggest surprise was persistence. I was the kind of guy who used to say, if at first you don't succeed, give up. <laughs> That's fine if you're only doing things for your own sake. But if you're a leader, you can't give up. And you suddenly discover you have a persistence that you didn't know you had. So um, keep going, inspire others, and uh, continue to stay true to your basic principles. And that way you may still have some pretty rocky times, but you will reach your destination and bring a lot of other people with you.